Welcome back to the cross-border interviews ballot box this uh, beautiful Friday morning, July 23rd. We are back to talk about the biggest political news stories of the week from here in Alberta and across Canada. Uh, we will be sticking mostly to Alberta as always, and our, as always, our amazing guest who has decided to join us once again, because she's a glutton for punishment, it seems like, to come back on the show. Miss Jennifer Sanford, the host of Conservative Like Me podcast. Thank you so much for doing this. Greatly appreciate it. Thanks for having me here. Listen, I'm disappointed last week that we got along as much as we did. So this week we're going to fight. We certainly are. There's a lot of topics that we want to dive into. And uh, I, I want to start with the biggest, one of the biggest uh, political shockwaves, I would say, but I don't think it was that big of a surprise to many people, was uh, former Bank of Canada, Bank of England uh, chair, Mr. Mark Carney had announced that if there was an election this fall, he would not be running because he has priorities with Boris Johnson in the United Kingdom in November that he wants to follow through with. Um Yet again, the mainstream media, and I hate to use those words, but the mainstream media decided that this was a big, big story and we needed to write about it to all ends of will he, won't he. I was not shocked about this. I think there was a lot of people saying that he was going to. I I hedged my bets and I did not think. What did you think of the announcement and what did you think about him actually not decide, him deciding not to be a candidate for the Liberal Party? Well, I did think he was going to run in this election. I thought that he had laid the, the foundation of building a social presence. I mean, he literally published a book um, that really, I think, is a threat to liberals and conservatives because it's such a pragmatic um, you know, view and, and centrist view of, of, of a vision for the future. I really did believe he was going to run, but I never really understood why. I do believe that Mark Carney is the future of the Liberal Party, and I think that that's a tremendous threat to every other political party. Um, I've, I've, I've said this very vocally, that if you think the next pivot for the Liberal Party is Christian Freeland, you're wrong. Um, uh, you know, Mark Carney ha has, you know, a, a tremendous amount of capacity, um, you know, not only in the economic space, but also in the policy space to effectuate change that I think would be very you know, interesting for Canada, myself as a conservative would have a very difficult time, um, you know, placing a, a conservative vote with a Mark Carney on a, on a liberal science. So uh, knowing that I'm extraordinarily ordinary and a lot of people think the way I think, you know, I think it is a nice pivot for him. I do think he will take a run at the leadership. Um, but I think we can't forget the veneer of this, you know, not running because he has climate commitments, you know, climate commitments, my ass, right? Like we just now have heard this from Catherine McKenna as well. And I think that maybe the, the side takeaway other than, oh my God, Mark Carney's not running should be, why is it all of the major players in the climate space, Catherine McKenna, you know, others, Mark Carney now um, are saying like, we need to address the climate. It's urgent. Um, and I cannot effectuate that change within the government. Like how nervous should we be about that, right? Because the, the in theory it should be, you know, I'm a champion for climate. I can bring, you know, you know, policy groups and, and working groups and, and different people, and I can effectuate that change from within the government. Where ultimately policy becomes law, and we're having multiple people say the best way I can effectuate change is outside of the government, and they're and they're choosing not to assign themselves. That tells me that there's something functionally, some something. Well, there's many things that are functionally wrong, but I think that this should be chiefly among them to be recognized that this is now a second person that is saying that I'm, I'm committed to climate negotiations 
And that doesn't allow me to be congruent with the, with the government of power. That doesn't seem right to me. I think as uh, two former political staffers, you in the Ralph Klein era, me in the Dalton McGinta era, you know how slow government moves. I think uh, I think there's a few people who understand that as best as we do. And I think the average person understands that government takes forever to do anything, even if it's rolling out money, even if it's applying for a grant, you have to apply a year uh, beforehand. And it does take time to do anything with any level of government, municipal, provincial or federal. Um, I do understand what you're, where you're coming from when it comes from the, hey, we, we can't do anything about climate change in government. So we have to go start our own company or continue working with Boris Johnson, who, let's be honest, is probably uh, when it comes to climate change a lot on more on the right spectrum compared to where Justin Trudeau has tried to position himself. So I don't understand where Carney has come out and said, Hey, we're not going to talk about, we're not going to work with Justin Trudeau on climate change. We're going to work with uh, Boris Johnson. So that tells me that even people in the liberal party understand that Justin Trudeau has not done anything for the, uh, the issue of climate change and, like you said, if Catherine McKenna, former environment minister, Mark Carney, one of the biggest green people I would assume would ever run for the uh, Liberal Party, have said that they don't have faith in this government, it tells me that Justin Trudeau needs to recalibrate his green message and start bringing it back to a more uh, green party view because they're imploding and they need to pick up those seats and if uh, those votes. And if they aren't, then that gives opportunity for other parties to go up the middle and get those green votes. I get that. But this is also about alignment. This is also about personal alignment. I mean, I've made no secret about it that I was asked to run um, for the Conservative Party when Andrew Scheer was the leader. And as a candidate, you really have to ask yourself, am I going to extend my personal collateral and my brand, regardless of how small or insignificant it may be, against a leader who believes what they believe? And I think that Mark Carney would be getting the type of advice and money advice around just wait. Um, and, you know, I think you can, I think you can come for the King. And if I was advising Mark Carney, which will never happen in any universe, um, I would be giving that, him that advice. I would say, you know, to position yourself within this party, you know, there's a lot of collateral damage. Catherine McKenna's gone, Jane Philippot, who I think we, we would have been so well served to have had a, a, an infectious disease doctor as a member of the as a member of the cabinet during a global pandemic, Jody Raybolt Wilson, who I'm sure we'll talk about, you know, is gone, gone and gone with with total disdain. Um, Selena, you know, li like her, loathe her, is gone. Um, I think we'll never really know. Uh, Bill Moore, Bill Moore knows. I think he left as finance minister because he was unwilling to toe the line. And when that became a problem, he replaced her, her uh, him with Christa Freeland, who I think will absolutely toe the line and she'll become collateral damage of this party. And I think that Mark Carney said, is this where I want to put my brand reputation? And the answer was no. And then I think the, the veneer of it becomes this ridiculousness about I have, I have climate commitments.
Yeah. And there are so many cabinet ministers who are jumping ship right now. And the Navy Baines has announced that he's not running. Um, The one I'm still watching for, and I'm anticipating probably an announcement here soon. I know he is up for re-election, but that doesn't stop people from pulling out last minute is our defense minister, uh, Harjit uh, Sajan, sorry, um, who has been getting hit after hit after hit after hit in the opposition parties. And it seems like uh, any week goes by and there's a new stories about him. So like you said, the narrative around uh, being the, uh, towing the party line is there, but Trudeau's willing to drop anyone left, right and center if it allows him to advance his career as prime minister for another two, three years. And, and yet not dropping the ones that he should. I mean, Mark Gerritsen, like what that guy, I'm so grateful because I, always wondered if I could ever belong in parliament. And he proves that anybody could be in there. Um, you know, some of the ones that should be, should be jumping or should be held to account. I mean, yeah, Sejan is one of them. Uh, Carolyn, Carolyn Bennett, Bennett is another one of yeah. them. Yeah. Carolyn Bennett is another one. Um, you know, Mark Garrison, you know, it, it is interesting to me that, you know, you're, you're hemorrhaging, um, you know, a striking amount of people. And yet the people that are staying with you are the people who probably provide the most harm to you. And I mean, conservatives are very good at this. They wrote, they've written the playbook on this in the past. So I don't want to be the pot in the kettle on this one. But um, it, yeah, it is it is interesting. But I think if I'm, I'm guessing that Mark Carney's just been getting some advice around, like, let this thing come apart. And I think that, you know, you talk about him having a, a green message. I do think he has a striking green message. But I also think on the other side of, of the spectrum, on the conservative side of the spectrum, you know, he's not about drama. And so many of us are tired of the hollow drama and the lack of action. And as we continue to go through leader after leader after leader, I think Mark Carney has an opportunity to stand closer to the center of the political spectrum, especially on strong economic growth messages, which he really detailed well in his book. And I think that that, um, you know, he's got more opportunities than he has deficits. I think the one thing that I we haven't mentioned when it comes to Mark Carney's is age, and I and I hate to play the ageism card when it comes to politics, but he is no young chicken. The older he gets, the more time that passes that he's not in parliament, that the leadership does not uh, come up for a vote, uh, the more likely he is not going to run. So I would be very interested to see if there's a leadership election probably in the next three to four years, because if Trudeau wins his majority, he will probably, this will probably be his last election. This will be the last, yeah. Um, and Mark Carney will be in his 60s. And I do not believe that uh, a 60-year-old would be able to attract the youth vote as a younger, more upstart uh, candidate. And I don't know who that is in the, uh, the Liberal Party, because like uh, when Stephen Harper left, there was a vacuum and no one really knew who was going to run or who wasn't going to run. And everyone under the bus decided to run. Even Kevin O'Leary decided to run. So I don't see how Mark Carney can wait any longer to get into politics. And this this blows his chances of potentially ever becoming leader, in my view. So yet again, oh, this is why we disagree That's on so many things. Stop it. That's stop it. No way. When you're wrong, you can buy me a mistake. True, true, true. Uh, the next big thing, and we t- I mentioned it briefly there, is Jody uh, Wilson-Raybould. Uh, Miss Raybould's book, Indian in the Cabinet. And I should say Indian as in air quotes, in the cabinet, because that is the title of her book, was expected to be released in October, which everyone was excited to read because hypothetically that's when an election would might be called if there was going to be one. And then Harper Collins, the publisher of the book, decided, hey, 
we're going to move it up to September, middle of September, potentially coinciding with a election call there, potentially with the last few weeks or the first few weeks of the campaign. I am shocked about this, but also at the same time, uh, if Jody, Miss uh, Wilson-Raybould is actually telling HarperCollins what to do, she has the best political mind that I could potentially ever uh, uh, equate to because everything she has done in the last few weeks has positioned her for a run provincially, municipally, to do whatever she wants after this. What was your opinion of the change of release date in the book before we start talking about the book? Okay, yeah. So the big question, I think I, I, think I even sent you a, a text message saying, like, what does she know? Yeah. This is probably the most revealing thing about the election timing is what she thinks she knows about when we're going to the polls. Um, I have kind of an unpopular opinion on this. So let me try to give the two sides of it. First of all, I think that Jody Wilson-Raybould is a statesman. I think she is a statesperson at, at a time when we have very few of them in the House of Commons. I am very sad that she is not running um, in Vancouver Granville. I think about Bill 96, like people really don't know this because we weren't paying attention because we were dealing with this little thing called COVID, but it's important to note that Quebec brought forward Bill 96 and said, we want to have Quebec be unilingual, unilingual. we want to have nationhood for Quebec, we want to have all of this sweeping power. Um, and everybody was like, yeah, of course, yeah, of course we need, yeah, for sure you can have it because we know we can't get elected without Quebec. And she stood up and said, no, no, this is not the right choice for Canada. And thank God she opposed it, otherwise it would be law today. And I think it is vital that we recognize the power of independent people, especially independent people with the, with a mind, with a political mind like Jody Wilson-Raybould. I will be but, up front and say, hold on. <laughs> I just want to just jump on that no, uh, note here for a second. You have to remember, she wasn't the only independent to vote against that motion. Yeah, true. But she was the most vocal, right? So Mr. True. Derek Sloan, Mr. Conservative, uh, Mr. I don't know where he's coming from, voted against it as well. But continue on. Sorry, I just wanted to add sorry. my two cents that liberal <laughs> independents aren't all the same. There are conservative That's independents true. who think that That's there shouldn't true. be a one nation. But go ahead. That's true. I'm my apologies. I what's happening is that as a conservative who believes that Derek Sloan is, is going to be the death of conservatism. I'm doing what I do when I break up with a boyfriend. I just pretend they died and just, just don't pay attention to where they are politically. But the other side of, of Jody Raybolt Wilson, Jody Wilson Raybolt, my apologies, is that she also has this, this least likable character trait is that she, she has a tendency to have a little bit more drama than I think is necessary the recording of the phone calls that ultimately got her kicked out of the party. Sometimes I wonder, like, was there another way to do that in a less dramatic way? And, and, and what I'm trying to avoid is, you know, I spent enough time in the United States to really understand that, you know, Trump style politics was really about, you know, try to effectuate as much change as you can and then write a tell all book. And I really think that it cheapens the experience of everybody, these, these tell all books. And, you know, I, I, 
I, I really hope that, you know, and I've really been reading a lot about this book um, in anticipation of it coming out to try to get as much as I can. She talks about it as a memoir, which drives me crazy because she is done. She's hardly started in her political career. But I, 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 I'm worried that it's going to be about, you know, the drama that was infill. It's going to be like this tell all against Justin Trudeau. And it's going to be like, I can come for the King in the election season and her moving it into the election window tells me it's going to be that kind of book. And I just think like what I want Canadians to have is I want her to talk about, you know, she was part of helping to get, you know, the next expansions of medical assistance and dying. That was not an easy process to, to, to get done. You know, I think she's at the nexus of true recon, recon, truth and reconciliation. I want to hear her talk about that. I want to hear her talk about how you have a vision when the vision isn't congruent. And, you know, I've just finished Melinda Gates' book, um, the, the Moment of Lift, and it really talked about how, and especially women, we effectuate real change in systems that are not designed for us to be successful. That's what I want her book to be about. And I'm worried it's just going to be this salacious page turner around, you know, and then Justin did this and then Justin did that. And I honestly don't care. And I think if she positions herself as a, as a stateswoman, a statesperson, and, and, and someone who's going to have incredible intellectual pedigree, I really don't want her then to also have this like tell all book. That's not what I want for her. Um, and I say that as a conservative who generally wants to take down the prime minister. So you can imagine how I have multiple incongruent things, but you know, when she released her statement and she, and she said, you know, there's a, a disgraceful triumph of, of harmful partisanship over substantive action. I hope that she addresses a new vision and a new way forward to address that in the house of commons and not just rail against it. So I have, I have high expectations of this book. I'm going to be a, an, an eager reader, but for sure it's coming out in the election period, which should tell us that I was right about the election window and you were wrong. And that's all that matters. You, uh, you were right now does not mean that you're right <laughs> when it actually gets called. So we still have that steak dinner on the plate at the table. We will decide later on who is actually right and who is wrong. I think I'm still right and you are wrong, but that's here nor there. We are going to argue about that until the day Justin Trudeau and Mary Simon call that election. Um, I do want yes, to talk, sir. I continue on this topic because I think this book is, like you said, I think it's going to have two, uh, two edges to it. It's going to have that tell all book of how she's what she did in government, but also the, Hey, I took on Justin Trudeau and this is what he said. This is what I said. This is what he said. The back and forth between that. Um, I think for those who are reading it, we'll only take the one side, the, Hey, just uh, JWR said this, this, and this, where the rest of it will be forgotten. And the reason I say that is because of Selena uh, Cesar Chavez's, uh, Chavez's, uh, Selena's book, uh, Can You Hear Me Now, which I read. It, it has a lot of substantial policies. It has a lot of things that you want to read about. But what people took away from it was, hey, I told the prime minister to F off when he basically said things to me. And that's what I think... Uh, Jody's book is going to do. It's going to become a one-sided book, and I'm afraid that it's going to lose, and she is going to lose some of the gravitas that she has built up in her political career, and it could potentially yeah. 
ruin or wreck a potential future political career in municipal or provincial politics, or even if she wants to do something on the national stage ever again. I, I, I'm looking at it more as this. As a big F you to Justin Trudeau, though, and this is just me being, hey, Aaron O'Toole, if you're listening, if you do become prime minister, best way to screw over Justin Trudeau is to appoint her into Senate. <laughs> like, honestly. Yeah, so I'm so glad that you I'm so glad that you brought that up, because if you were indifferent about should senators be appointed or elected, Jody Wilson-Raybould proves my point because she absolutely would be dynamic in the Senate. And this is the best way to get her in there would have been to elect her in there. Um, mm. I find it so cute that you said like, oh, Aaron O'Toole, if you're the prime minister, that's such a like, oh, way to go, way to dream. Um, hey, I went to a Maxine Bernier event last night. He had his supporters out there. I took photos. I was the only media there. So I give due diligence and I give all credence to anyone who wants to run for prime minister and i will blow smoke up their asses if i have to so erin o'toole you will be prime minister one day in your head (laughs) in your head in your own head do you think that jody will run as mayor of vancouver that is what i heard so i I did look at i was looking at that a little bit uh i know their current uh mayor and i forget his name but he was a former ndp uh kennedy stewart Kennedy Stewart. Uh, he is uh, up for re-election in a few years. I can see Jody potentially taking on him. The issue with uh, Vancouver politics is the party system. Party system, party system, yes. party system. So Jody would have to get with a party or potentially run as an independent. And those, because she has the name and she won as an independent, she could do it. But I would be very reluctant to see her run as an independent mayorly. I can see her potentially if Horgan steps down, becoming leader of the NDP. And I think that that's a demotion. I think that that's a demotion. I think she wielded so much power in Ottawa. And I, yeah, I want to see her stay federal, stay federal, Jody. Yeah. Anyway, the thing that we will know, the thing that we both know is that we don't know where she's going, but she does. Oh, She's probably known where she's going as of 2019 after the last election. She knows she, like I said, she has one of the best political minds in Ottawa that has left Ottawa. And I think there's going to be a vacuum gap of uh, knowledge and uh, power and actual, uh, uh, like you said, statesmanship, because I think with her gone, there's nobody to fill that actual independent voice anymore and that's sure. going to be a detriment to our, our parliamentary system. I think she is well aware of what putting this book out on the 14th or the 12th. I forget which day it is. And 14th. when that, pardon me, the 14th, 14th, 14th. So when that book does come out, I, I think she's ready for her cross country tour. And I don't know what her cross country tour is all about. Is it just, I hate Justin Trudeau now and I want him uh, defeated or is it, Hey, I have a story to tell and I want to tell my story to the people. Because if it's the latter, if it is the I hate Justin Trudeau, liberals who elected her are probably all going to come out against her, which they've already started doing. But I think the bigger question is like, so she says, like, I don't want Justin Trudeau to be the prime minister. And then the next question you get asked is, well, who then? And there is no one else. There just isn't anyone else. Do you want Aaron O'Toole to be prime minister? Do you want Jagmeet Singh to be prime minister? Do you want 
enemy Paul slash Elizabeth May, whoever the leader of the Green Party will be, to be it. So that's that's my two cents on that. I I, I am very hesitant to I'm, I'm looking forward to the book, but I'm hesitant to see what the book actually has, because if it is the bashed Justin Trudeau, I think she's done a disservice to herself and the political discourse of Canada. Agreed. Oh, I'm so disappointed. I agree. <laughs> you agree with a semi-liberal? What? <laughs> I know. I know. Something's happened to me. Uh, I do want to mention this because you did talk about Mary Simon. Uh, we're going to jump around in our rundown here. But Mary Simon is coming up to be installed as the next governor general on Monday, Monday, July 26th. She will be our official new governor general of Canada. She met with the queen yesterday by virtual Zoom. And she is ready to be sworn in. Uh, since her appoint uh, or her uh, the announcement of her being the next governor general, there have been I quote four hundred. That's right, four hundred complaints about her being uh, unable to speak the French language to uh, uh, the ethics commissioner to the commissioner of languages. I'm not sure exactly what it is. I apologize. My mind's blanking right now and I didn't take the note, but 400 people have submitted uh, uh, complaints that she does not know how to speak the French language and it will hurt the French language and it will hurt Quebec potentially. And I'm saying that because I'm assuming all 400 complaints came from the province of Quebec. What did you think of it, this report when it first came out? Because I read it in CBC and the Globe and Mail that these were coming out and I was shocked and dismayed because honestly, she was an awesome pick. Yeah, um, this shit bugs me. This bugs me. This bugs me. I don't, I, don't, I, have, I don't have anything intellectual to say, honestly. I agree with Gary Mason's piece in the Globe and Mail that says, uh, maybe if you speak one of the country's first languages, you shouldn't have to learn the two others. Just a thought. Um, but this is ridiculous. This is this is this is what happens when there's always separate rules for Quebec. Right. And I mean, you have to remember this Bill 96 business. And I know I keep harkening back to that, but they're actually making Bill 96 is about trying to make one province unilingual. They're actually trying to remove English. This whole issue of our official languages is going to have to come to a head somehow. But this is. The bigger piece to this, I don't want to make this about like what Quebec needs versus what the other countries have. I want to really remain focused on what I think is at the heart of this issue, which is that we are we are going to have the wrong people represent this country if we continue to look at their deficits over their capabilities. And, you know, I'm seeing at the municipal level and at the provincial level, good people choosing not to run because one of the first meetings they have to sit in is these are all the things that are wrong with you. Now, let me be clear that I'm an advocate for reality therapy. I'm a conservative. And I think that that is the reason why conservatives are not being elected is because they don't look in the mirror and say, okay, what are our deficits that we need to change? So there is a worthwhile exploration at a party level of, you know, who are we and who do we aspire to be to align ourselves with the potential and momentum and direction and will of Canadians. But Mary Simon is a great pick. I think she's 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 really got an understanding of the truth part and the reconciliation part as individual action items as we as we as we address our indigenous history and future. And 
as a country who's grappling to define these terms too late, she stands in a, in a place of power to be able to identify this. And yet all we're going to do is just rip apart what's, what's wrong with her. And I think we got to really take, oh, I'm going to sound like my dad here. If you listen to conservative like me, this is going to sound familiar, but I think we all just need to take a step back and take a big deep breath and just say, is this the fight for today? Because we're trying to do something inspirational here. And she is a great representative and we should have this type of representation at the governor general level. I said this last week, I'll say it again. She's made a commitment to learn French at 73. I I think that is a, a, a tall task, but it's important to remember that the governor general's office is absolutely stacked with, with Francophone, like not just French speaking people, but Francophone Canadians who can help to lift that. And I want to just ask the question around like, when did we, when did we stop being a country that said she doesn't know how to do this? So we're going to lift her into this. Like, when did we stop being so aspirational? Like what happened and who's responsible for this shift? Because this is a prime example of all Canadians coming together and saying, you know, memorials and and monuments and, and outrage and burning churches isn't going to address truth and reconciliation. Having someone as our head of state that understands how to embed our indigenous experience into the true Canadian experience is what we need. Let's look at where she's, let's look at what she doesn't have and let's lift, let's lift this. And I think if there was ever a time that Canadians needed to do that, it's on this issue. It's on this issue. This is a good pick for us. And the fact that we're doing this endless piece around, let's talk about what's wrong with it just pisses me off. I think there is a underlying uh, moment in our political history right now where um, anyone who has a skeleton in their closet, anyone who is against something, anyone who can't do something can't run for political office. Anyone whose opinion is different than what their party or their beliefs are, they can't run for political office. Um, in today's society where, uh, like you said, the political discourse is Quebec, 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 everyone needs to uh, handhold Quebec because they're going through things right now. Um, I'm surprised that Aaron O'Toole, Jagmeet Singh and Enemy Paul have not come out and said, hey, you know what, this is bullshit. Um, she is a great pick. She is an awesome pick. She is, like you said, she is guaranteed. She has told us that she is going to learn the language. She has great staff around her at Rideau Hall. I am very shocked that in today's society, when we have such a great pick like Mary Simon, that we're afraid to come out and say, you know what, we have a great pick. And our political leaders don't want to do that because they're afraid to lose votes in Quebec. And if we are now the uh, the country of Quebec, then I would really like to know that because then I need to start learning French to ever run for political office ever again. And I, I highly suspect, just, go ahead. It's not just political office. It's not just political office. It's going to be any type of federal employment. It's going to be any type of, like, you, we have to recognize that, you know, if, if, if you just said, if Quebec is, is the future of Canada, well, let me pop that bubble for you. The Quebec is the future of Canada. They're wielding, just an, a completely asymmetrical type of power. And it's, it's time to renegotiate that. I mean, I'm all well on the record to say, if you want uh, nationhood, absolutely, you can have it, but you're going to lose equalization, right? There has to be a, a, a cross balance to this. Um, you know, I, I just think we have to remember 
And, and history informs this is, you know, famous Abe Lincoln quote used to say, you know, people who have, vi people have, people with vices, you can't have, what is it? People with vices have no virtue or people with virtue have no vices or something about that. People who have vision also have flaws. And sometimes you have to look at the flaws and say, is this a trade-off that I could make? I mean, look at my own experience in the conservative party. I'm someone who believes in unwielding um, economic growth. I believe we don't need to choose between the environment and, and the economy. I believe in, in, in innovation and, and science and all these great things. But what stops me in this political party is that I really genuinely believe in medical assistance and dying. And I've been a vocal advocate and a huge participant to say that how people choose to end their life is not a political issue. It's a human right. And that keeps me away from my own party. Um, that's a pariah statement. And what we have to remember is that, you know, people are going to have deficits as long as they're sort of smart deficits. It's not like I, you know, believe something that's totally punishing, right? Like, you know, our vaccination program was nothing but, you know, human microchipping. That's crazy. You can dismiss me then. But, you know, everybody's going to have, you know, these, 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 you're never going to have perfect people. And if you have perfect people, they're not going to have vision. They're not going to have, you know, this, this, the type of character to, 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 to address the adversity of, um, of, of the job. And I just think we have to just take a step back and just say like, what are we doing here by constantly railing against people's deficits, overlooking at their capabilities? That's, that's not who we are. That's not no. who we are. I am a, uh, quote unquote, uh, white male. I, I'm not sure why I'm saying quote unquote white male, because it's pretty obvious <laughs> yeah, I'm a white male. I think you are. <laughs> yeah, I am a white male. I come from a background of privilege. I, I, I grew up in a safe household in a safe neighborhood, and uh, I was able to go to a great college, university, and moved out west. Um, I, I got to ask this question to the woman in the room, the white woman in the room. <laughs> oh, God. Would yeah, this, great. This is the moment... <laughs> This is the moment where we're going to start arguing. Does does what what is happening with Mary Simon is what is happening with Mary Simon because so I want to word this correctly. Is it because she's a woman that this is what's happening to Mary Simon? No. If this was a man, would it be different? No. This is about this is about her not speaking French and not pissing off the people of Quebec. Okay. That's it. Okay, so now oh, I, I think, you know, I do think it's important to know that you have to know, you have to know, given the current, the current political climate and, and, and human sentiment, that some of those complaints were about the fact that she's an indigenous person. Like, you just have to know that some of those were those garbage discrimination claims in there. But um, yeah, no, this is a this is a, a 400 tells me that it's a movement. Um, that Quebec is like, hey, listen, we're not, we have to be part of everything. We have to be quintessentially part of everything. And we're not, we don't feel part of this and we're going to complain about it because that's what we do. Um, I, the and reason I, I want to be that, clear. Oh, sorry. Continue on. No, no, no. Go, go ahead. Okay. The reason I ask that is because we have seen male politicians uh, fall down flat on their face. Uh, and I, I look at two examples uh, more prominently than others where we we did not see a groundswell of people come out in against the politicians. We had Scott Moe, we have the current premier of Saskatchewan and the current premier of uh, Nova Scotia, Ian Rankin, who have openly admitted to drunk driving. 
Um, we go back to this idea of uh, we have to be held to a higher standard and 400 people yet again is a quote unquote uh, campaign, but there was no campaign against Scott Moe. There was no campaign against Ian Rankin for doing what they did. They were drinking and driving. They got caught. They got fined. They could have killed somebody. And yet there's no groundswell of, hey, you know what? I'm sorry I did this. I'm sorry that uh, you or I'm not. They did. They did apologize, but there's no groundswell of 400 reports to the uh, auditor general in Saskatchewan and Nova Scotia to say they need to resign. They need to leave. But yet, when it comes to the French language, because we are a bilingual country, there is a groundswell of people saying, "Hey, she needs to leave because she doesn't speak the two languages." I. Uh, yet again, this could be me being uh, identity politics and playing off of it quite well. I think if she was a man, and I, I mean this with all due respect to every woman who is listening to this right now, if it was a man, I do not believe you would see the amount of people say, because he would have said, hey, I'm going to learn the language. And I think everyone would be like, okay, I think it's a lot harder to be a woman in politics right now. And we'll talk about that in two seconds. But I want to get your opinion on uh the groundswell of is it just Quebec or is it just our political discourse that has changed that no matter what, we have to just bow down to Quebec and just let them do what they want and just let them throw their tantrum? Uh, well, no, you don't get to throw a tantrum in this country. There's only 35 million of us. Everything is about adaptive leadership and having to work through things. And as as a person from a province who is used to being disappointed by decisions in confederation that leaves us out, I think it's important that Quebec realizes that everybody gets a turn being disappointed. This is yours. But coming back to your earlier point, I think you do have to extrapolate all the parts here. Is it more difficult for a woman to be in the political space than it is for a man. Yeah, I do believe that that's true. I think that's why you have so many groups that come forward to encourage women to run for office. I mean, I still, like, I'm no fan of Catherine McKenna, but her being called Climate Barbie still pisses me off. Um, so, you know, I do think it is a different experience. I think to your earlier point, you're absolutely right that, that there are sometimes different rules for, for men than there are women. I think the best example that you have at the federal level is uh, Julie Payette has a disastrous culture um, in, in the governor general's office and she's out. Um, the head of defense has a systemic problem with sexual assault against women who have committed their life to the armed forces who are willing to die for this country. And he remains in that post. So, you, you know, you have to, you have to really look at, are there different experiences? I'm watching the issue with Carolyn Bennett in her office very closely, because if then a decision is made that she has to go, then we have a trend and a pattern, right? That offices led by women um, that are untenable um, lead to the dismissal. And, and that simply does not occur for, for men who hold that office. So I'll be watching that very carefully. There are different rules between the genders, but I think on this issue of Mary Simon, this is so about the language. And this is so about Quebec. And this is so about the idea that, you know, Quebec is, is committed to fighting its, its, its language for its language as, as quintessential to its identity. And they're not willing to take, to take the loss, even though the trade-off is really um, a woman who has exceptional leadership in this space. Does this, this is about liberals in the next election, do you believe? Because I'm looking at it as a, hey, we need to pony up to Quebec because that's how you win a majority. Do you, you don't think it's going to affect them? No, no, I do not. 
there's enough for Quebec being offered by by the prime minister's office. There's enough okay. there. We'll be fine. She'll be, um, be fine. For those who are tuning in right now, we are at the about 40 minute mark. Uh, we are talking the these political news stories of the week uh, with Jennifer Sanford, the host of political uh, conservative like me, I was going to say political like me, but conservative like me <laughs> podcast host, which can be found in the show notes. So I highly recommend that you go over and check it out because she has some great conversations with her uh, guest and her father about the uh, biggest things that are happening in the conservative movement today. So uh, Jennifer, I want to talk about, uh, I want to talk about a little bit is- issues, a little bit closer to home. We have two political parties, the Alberta party and the Alberta Western independence party who, while we are in the midst of a leadership campaign, are finding themselves without candidates for said leadership campaign. Uh, We have talked on this show uh, numerous times about the Alberta Party, so I'm going to start there, but I want to dive a little bit deeper into it. But we are less than 40 days away from the, the, the cutoff date for the leadership campaign for the Alberta party. Not one candidate as of yesterday. There might have been one at eight o'clock this morning who was raring to go at Elections Alberta to send in their information to uh, uh, lead the Alberta party. Um, is the Alberta party a dead entity now? Because when I spoke to Jackie Fenske, the interim leader, she said there's going to be a few candidates who are putting their name forward over the summer. We have yet to see that come to fruition. What do you think about the Alberta party and the fact they're leaderless with a leaderless campaign? I think that this is tragic. I think that this is tragic. I think what a missed opportunity. Uh, All the momentum is on their side. You know, I, I shake my head at this because I just absolutely, I absolutely can't figure it out. I mean, my political mind says that this is Saul Alinsky 101. Right. And he wrote that book, Rules for Radicals, which is pretty aggressive. But one of the sort of gems in that in that uh, in that book is, you know, pick the target, freeze it, personalize it and polarize it. And, you know, that is the way forward for the Alberta Party to be able to come to Albertans and say, we as a as a people, as a young, entrepreneurial, driven, motivated, resourceful, educated people, we deserve better. You know, you stand still long enough waiting for major political parties to define a vision for this province and ultimately standing or at some point standing still waiting for that vision to appear becomes the vision. Some really good policy ideas, a willingness to work with unions, investments in innovation, which would include post-secondary and one big idea. Let's say something like a train between between uh, Edmonton and, and Calgary will get the attention of this party and, and and then you just build a steadiness and then you can I think you can get a groundswell. I think you can say this is madness. We have one party out of lockstep and we have another party that we cannot afford. And Albertans deserve better than that. Um, you know, we're that we're that we're that bus driver party. We're just steady and responsible. And we've had one to two, but no more than four accidents on our record. And that's that's the key forward for them. I I think that there has never been a bigger window for them to come right up the middle. And, you know, Nahed Nenshi actually is is in my mind every time I think about the every time I think about the um, the Alberta party, not because I expect him to lead it, obviously, but because he became mayor by doing exactly this. Right. Good policy ideas, a willingness to work with people and to basically take the other two leading candidates at the time and say, you deserve better than both of these. 
I can offer something that's better. And then you just ride the wave of momentum. This is madness to me that there are not political leaders that are willing to step into this space, right? All they need is that is to wrangle a highly educated, articulate person from a major city and just start shaking the tree of saying we deserve better. Too many fault points on both sides. We cannot have Albertans go to an election and say, well, which is, you know, which is the devil I know or, or which is going to cause the least amount of damage. Major groups, packed groups, people with money feel disenfranchised by both political parties. There is time to put forward someone who can really, 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 really effectuate change and put the Alberta party on the map in a way that far exceeds what Greg Clark did under his leadership. This is madness to me that they can't even find a candidate to run it. Like what is going on? This is madness. I would agree wholeheartedly. Um, uh, I have, uh, become disillusioned with two the two provincial parties and the longer the Alberta party and I I will even I'll throw them a bone here because let's be honest they are they're also in the same boat but the Alberta Liberals the Alberta Liberals are they have an interim leader they're running a, a leadership campaign not uh, open yet but there will be one probably in the next few months next year that the longer that these two parties, the two quote unquote centrist parties, and I know the UCP and the NDP are trying to fill that void of the centrist uh, party, the longer the Alberta party and the Alberta Liberal Party become, uh, the longer they stay leaderless, actual permanent leaderless, the better chances, and I'm going to throw yet again these guys a bone, the uh, Wild Rose Independence Party is gaining in the polls because yes, it is. people are trying to find a home and they can't find a home because all the parties aren't running at full steam right now. And it pisses me off to no extent that we have a two-party system right now, which is going to be a three-party system that is going to be, hey, you're either blue, yellow, or you want to separate from Canada. And I'm sorry, but in, in Alberta, we should not just have three options. We should have a vast wealth of uh, choices. And the Alberta party is dropping the ball every day that someone doesn't announce. So if someone's about to announce, announce tomorrow, announce today. Stop waiting for the perfect moment. The perfect moment was gone a month Yesterday. and a half ago when the nominations opened. You knew you were going to run, then announce. I don't care who you are, get out there, start knocking on doors. I know it's a municipal campaign. I know there's a federal election, but the longer you wait, the worse it's going to be when you're trying to actually run, lead the party as a permanent leader. <laughs> yeah, but, but you have to also acknowledge, so a couple of things there. Um, fine, I'll announce tomorrow. I'm running. <laughs> You, you know, I'm just guys. kidding. You heard it here yeah, first. Exactly. I, I have, that's, I'm that's just the quote I'm pulling out of the show. <laughs> Jennifer Sanford running <laughs> Jennifer for the Alberta party. <laughs> Absolutely. But you, you do have to think about, like, uh, not me, but someone like me, right? Like, I'm Ivy League educated. I'm from a major city, but I, I come from rural you know, I, I understand policy ideas. I'm not afraid to be unpopular. I have very few skeletons in my, in my closet. Um, I have a willingness to work with, with unions in a way that really makes sense to the bottom line. I think economically, but I also, you know, deeply care about social issues from the nonprofit sector. I'm ready to debate 
again and again and again, we need to find like a, like a me pedigree with someone who's ready to take this party somewhere. Because you, you do mention a, a good point about um, the, the whip, the, the wild rose independent, as they pick up steam and they will, they will pull votes away from, from conservatives, from the UCP. If the Alberta party can pull votes away from the NDP, but also appeal to the centrist element, the people like you and me of, of the UCP, it, the field then becomes wide open. And then wouldn't that be a great thing for Albertans to feel that they've got real choice going into the next election? I mean, there's always what's in the political spectrum, but then there's also right on top of that, what's fair and what's right to Albertans. And to see people really, really going to give a hard fight for your vote is exactly what this province needs right, right now. I sound like God, I sound like Michael Douglas, but in this province, we have we have serious problems to solve now and we need serious people to solve them. And our two options cannot simply be Kenny and Notley. Both have a vision. Both have absolutely a right to lead their party. But a, a additional choices benefit the benefit Albertans more than they harm them. Well, I wasn't going to dive into this, but I will jump into it because I want to talk about it here for a second. I think the are you going to announce you're running for the Alberta party? Oh, my God, guys, come on. He's going to announce it right now. Go ahead. Go ahead. We're listening. We can snap it. I'm here to announce that I'm potentially thinking about potentially starting a committee to start thinking about me creating a committee to run for the Alberta party. It's Um, the listing. It's called a listening tour. Yes, I will have my book out on September 1st. <laughs> that is <laughs> doing tour. I, I do want to talk about the NDP here for a second, and I do want to talk about it. And I know we didn't mention, I did not give you any heads up on this, but this has been irking me for a while. And this is going to probably cause a little bit of a fight because I'm not sure where you stand on this. But the NDP are going through identity crisis right now. I will be honest and I will be upfront about that. The Alberta party is the Alberta NDP are going through identity crisis. Um, You are seeing the Alberta NDP becoming a party of one, potentially two people. They are getting away from their uh, idea of party of the working class and becoming the party of two people, Notley and Irwin. And I say that with all due respect to both of them, but they are becoming the party of two. The more and more you watch social media, you see the more and more Irwin is being pumped out there as a fundraising campaign tool, but also as a way to get get the progressives. And I think that's doing a disservice to people who want to vote for the NDP and want to vote for uh, what Notley did in the five, four years that they had. But if you are becoming a party of two and not representing all your MLAs and not promoting all your MLAs, I think you are hurting the chances of potentially becoming a government again. And that's my opinion. I'm doing a quick uh, study on this and I've been following social media for the last few weeks, but the more you watch Rachel Notley's Twitter feed, her Instagram feed, I would say one in four posts are of Janice Irwin. And if that's the new party, then I think the party needs to go through a little bit of a rebrand or Notley needs to step down and Irwin needs to take the leadership. There's my million dollar epiphany of July 23rd. (laughs) Yeah, so 
<laughs> yeah. Okay. We can let that hang out there. Like I don't pay much attention to the NTP because we cannot afford them. We cannot afford them. It's like when I go shop, when I go shopping for a car and I don't look at the, I don't look at a Lamborghini or a or Porsche or Range Rover because I cannot afford to drive those vehicles because we don't live in that type of economics. So good for them, whatever. It's also, you're also two years out from an election and basically the UCP is doing a great job of eating its own young. So stepping back politically and just being like, Hey, look at here's Janice Irwin and her cat oregano. Maybe that's okay. Like maybe that's just where they are. I mean, they are, they are using Janice Irwin as emblematic of, embracing diversity and, you know, having a really casual approach to politics and being approachable. I mean, she represents all of those themes that are important to the party. And she is a social dynamo, like her skateboarding and talking about policy, like why not make it approachable and make it real. Um, And I do trust Janice Irwin to stop if she feels she's being used as a prop to say, you know, here's, you know, here's, you know, all the diversity that we need in politics represented in this one person. I think she still wants to be seen as someone with a political mind and and, and I trust her to stop that. But, you know, while everybody else is scrambling, maybe it's good that you're just kind of kick it in neutral um, for the, for the summer. Um, The more vocal she becomes, the more polarizing she becomes as as Rachel Notley is the leader. And so I think hanging back as you wait for all these parties to to do what they do or self-destruct is probably an okay thing if we're not headed to an election until 2023. I think you'll see a game change for this party if we go to a leadership review on the UCP side or if Drew Barnes enacts his Dr. Evil plan, whatever he's planning there. you know, I, thank you. I think it's okay. Thank you for going down the rabbit hole with me on that one. It's just been on (laughs) my chest for the last few episodes and I've wanted to talk about it. I just didn't know how to bring it up. And I, we were talking about provincial politicians or uh, parties. And I, I I want to mention it because like I said, I think, uh, it might be true. They're, they're just sitting back and relaxing and letting other people lead for a bit, but, uh yeah let's 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 start promoting the leader more than some of the mlas and stop cutting oh oh, i'm sorry one last thing stop cutting mlas out of photos (laughs) there's literally three three photos i've seen from both parties who are like hey here's the two people you want to see we're just cutting out the people we don't care about like seriously guys wow that's weird that's weird that is weird Okay. <laughs> that's, that's my rant. Again, that's my rant for 8.56 in the morning. Uh, I want to talk about one last thing before we do wrap up here, the border. We did talk about vaccine roll of passports last week, but I want to talk about the border. So Canada has announced that anyone from America who is double vaccinated can come to Canada without quarantining. Yay. That's great news. Literally three days later, Joe Biden said, we're not accepting anyone from Canada until August 21st, potentially. What does this say that Justin Trudeau and Joe Biden are not on the same page with this? Because yet again, the greatest relationship ever or whatever you want to call our two partnerships, they are not working on the same page when it comes to opening the border. Does this send a sign to you and it sends a sign to me that Justin Trudeau is ready to call them election. People are opening up the border. Now it's on just Joe Biden to allow our people into America, or is this just something I'm reading too much into? Well, I think on this issue of opening the border, 
I think it is indicating to me that, you know, mommy and daddy are fighting. <laughs> I, I don't think that there's this great relationship that we've been sold. And I think it's important to be transparent. Now, listen, I, I love Joe Biden. I, I think that, you know, America having their dad back, I think that's also what we need here in Canada is just like, you know, someone who's going to be like, hey, guys, it's going to be OK. So I, you know, take that with my my love for Joe Biden. But, you know, his predecessor, Donald Trump, had this America first drumbeat around we're going to look after what's working for Americans and, and, and responsible for Americans. And and Joe Biden has largely kept that mantra in check just without the vitriol. It's important to remember that an America first paradigm of, of thinking both socially and economically has largely carried on in a Biden administration. It is ridiculous if you look at evidence-based decision-making to know that our vaccination rates are higher and they're more qualified. We didn't have a lot of AstraZeneca. We didn't have a lot of, we didn't have any Johnson and Johnson, um, which has lower rates of, of, of effectiveness. We're, we're a highly vaxxed and well-vaxxed population now. And, and we should see reciprocation on that, on that, on that border. I'm not buying at all the narrative that the, the Biden administration is saying we want to open the southern border and the northern border at the same time. And we're having a border issue. I do think that that this is a larger issue around around just looking at, you know, you know, potential spending or, um, you know, I, I, I really don't know what the issue is, but I, I, I think it's important to hearken back to. Um, the the G7, I keep calling it G6, the G7 summit that we had where Trudeau couldn't even get a meeting with Biden um, to, to talk about these issues. I, I am surprised by the United States choosing not to open their border. I do think that there's something bigger going on, but I also think that it's largely about America doing what's working for America. And if this is what's working for them and they want to be risk adverse and not maybe really look at the, the evidence in the same way that we all should, um, you know, that's their prerogative. I'm, I'm disappointed and, and, and I'm chiefly disappointed because the bigger issue here, and I feel this way about opening municipally and, and, and as we open, is that we need to start rewarding people who did the work. Um, you know, there were a lot of people in this country who got vaccinated that didn't want to. I have a good friend of mine who panicked so bad about having to go to a public space and, and get a vaccine. And it was it was it was not a positive experience, but they did it because they knew that you had to do the work. We now need to start rewarding people who did the work, people who stayed home, people who stayed away from friends and family, people who isolated and struggled to do so, who did the work to get vaccinated. We now need to meet those people and say, these are the freedoms that you are afforded because you did the work. Um, and, and I'd like to see more policy geared in that direction than in the direction of, well, what are we going to do about all these people who are anti-vax and how do we convince them and how do we keep everybody isolated until we can convince them? I think, you know, in the true, in the true spirit of self-efficacy, which is what conservatives have always stood for is you do you. And if you choose not to accept the consequences that you did not. And I think that that begins with working with America to open the border to fully vaxxed people and leaving our anti-vaxxed or non-vaxxed people, um, you know, right where, the, where, where we found them. Uh, one of the things that were mentioned yesterday at the uh, campaign rally downtown Calgary uh, with Maxine Bernier was um, we are now setting a course for two, part, two classes of people. 
while I don't want to believe that, I think the more and more I see people, the more and more uh, divided people are coming over the vaccine, I, I, I'm starting to actually believe it because we are now seeing businesses say, if you don't have your vaccination, you can't come in. If you don't wear a mask, you can't come in, even though in Alberta, and yet again, this is just Alberta, it is open to all. We Yesterday, Eric Clapton. Eric Clapton, I did not ever think I would ever mention him on the show, but Eric Clapton said, if a venue says uh, only vaccinated people can come to my show, I am not playing there. He got completely destroyed on social media, but it is it is his prerogative to do that. It is his prerogative to say anyone can come to my show vaccine vaccinated or not vaccinated. I, I know we were supposed to be talking about border reopening, but I want to ask you this because I think this is the bigger question. The more we move forward in society with around vaccination, do you believe we are becoming a more divided country because of the vaccinations, whether you be an anti-vaxxer or whether you be someone who can't get the vaccine because of medical issues like myself. I have not gotten my first or second dose and I'm not able to get it until I'm done my treatments. Mm-hmm. Do you believe we are moving to a more divided country because of that? And it does does it do a disservice for Canadians when we are now lumping it uh, people in as you're either vaccinated or not? You know, I think we're just, there's two issues here. The first is, is let's just step back and realize that we're, we've survived three waves of a global pandemic. Sometimes I just stop actually and pause and think, you know, later I'm going to look back and say, I survived a global pandemic. You know, like many people listening, I lost people to this pandemic. People, there was loss, people died. You know, close, a close friend of mine lost his father last week to, to COVID. My heart breaks for Brett. And, 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 and lost others, others in my own age group. I think it's important to remember that we are working through the end, hopefully the end of a global pandemic. So having two systems where we're, we're trying to acknowledge the people that did well and, and were able to get vaccinated and, and, and survived and also protect the people who maybe in your case did want to get vaccinated or didn't want to get vaccinated. I know we never talk about it, um, but couldn't. Uh, and then the people that didn't want to, I think we, we have to, it's, I think we're going to go through a period where we are going to have two sets of rules. I don't think that that equates to two classes of citizens because at some point COVID will dissipate. It will become, you know, uh, like the common flu, something that we have to be mindful of and something that we have to be vaccinated for. But I think this will come to a close. This isn't a forever issue. This is just, you know, Anyone who works in emergency management knows that it is very easy to roll up an emergency response. It is messy and complicated to roll down an emergency response. It has all these weird iterative things that happen. And and having two sets of rules for two different vaccination situations is going to be part of that. I think we're also going to have in certain parts of the world um, issues with with what I what I call um, uh, dilapidated um, vaccination where we have some people who received that China-based vaccine, which now they say only has 50% effectiveness. I think they're going to, that group of population is going to have some trouble. So it's going to be messy as we roll this down. But the bigger thing we have to take away is, is, is the, is the part of people to people. What does this say about who we are as people and as a society? Um, you know, I've, I've watched and I've had many conversations certainly with my father about this is we, we, through COVID, we did learn that the rules of the road are changed a little bit. We did see, 
you know, neighbors turning on neighbors, neighbors reporting neighbors, you know, people being shamed for their, for their mask behavior. I know my own mother struggled so much with the mask issue. It, she just struggled to keep it on her face. She said, it wasn't that she didn't care. It wasn't that she wasn't part of the process. It was that she just struggled with the mask piece. And did we, did we seize every opportunity to help one another? Or did we choose to use, you know, shame and, and subjectiveness to, 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 to really cripple one another? I think this is the big question that we're going to have to ask ourselves in the postmortem is, did we come together as we fought COVID or did we come apart? And, and no government is responsible for that. Only we ourselves are, are responsible for that as, as a society. And I think that's where we're going to figure out the two classes of, 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 of citizens is, is, is how, do, how do we work together, right? You know, if we live in Calgary, right? So I think about the stampede. If you wanted to go to stampede, go to stampede, be safe. If you didn't want to go to Stampede, you had absolutely a right to stay home. Where I had no tolerance for the for the discourse was in I'm going to shame you and I'm going to embarrass you and I'm going to make you feel humiliated by the choices you want to make. There has to be a sense of be safe, but you do you as we reopen, right? There was not a lot of this you do you as we rolled up this emergency, right? Um, but there has to be some of this you do you as we roll, as we roll this down. So I, I don't want to conflate the, the, the two issues because I think that they are different. I'm glad you just said that because I'm on the same opinion to you uh, when it comes to uh, hitting people when they're down. You know what? Some people for their mental health, for their ability to recover, to their ability to get back to quote unquote semi-normality, they needed to go to the stampede. Some people just wanted to go because they wanted to go. I have no grudge against anyone who wants to do whatever they want, as long as it's safe, as long as it's not hurting any, anyone else. Now, for those people who are going to send nasty emails saying that if you're not vaccinated and you went to stampede, you're, you're potentially spreading it to other people. I'm going to say this and I'm going to say, shut up. I understand that you're going to be pissed off that everyone is not following what you believe is right. But at the end of the day, we are a country of free movement. We are a country of free speech. We are a country of free uh, ideas. And the moment you start saying that your idea is better than anyone else's and your idea is the correct one is the moment I stop listening to you. I'm going to be wrong sometimes on this show. I'm going to be wrong. And I, I see Jennifer smiling right now, but I am going to be wrong sometimes on this show. And I will admit when I'm wrong, I will state my opinion to the best of my knowledge. And if that peeves people off about where I stand in the political spectrum, then so be it. I do not stand on the left or the right. I would say I'm more center right than I, I more people would give me credit to. I believe that the death penalty should be brought back. Does that mean that I'm a bad person? Possibly. Here we are. But when it comes oh to the Oh my vaccine, God, we're going to have to fight about that later. <laughs> we, we, we will talk about that in a future episode for sure. Um, I believe. But it's about, go it's ahead. about the doors, right? You know, I, I was, I was raised and, and something that I, that I tout out and, and something that I certainly believe in, in every relationship I have is that everything has to pass by three doors. Right. And I think about this with COVID. I think about this with political policy. I think about this, about, you know, how we interact with one another. 
is it truthful? Is it helpful? And is it kind? And if you can't get what you want to say through all three of those doors, then where does it have a place? I mean, we can have true dialogue. I, I'm such a champion in this country around living in a marketplace of ideas. I think that the intellectual capacity of our citizens is our greatest resource as a country. And there's only 35 million of us. We can have differences of opinion and differences of thought, but as we come together to have that great discourse, we can achieve outstanding things if we just look at, is it truthful? Is it helpful? And is it is it presented in a kind way? And I think our COVID experience would have been entirely different had we had those three values in mind as we work together as a society. Because, you know, the government at the federal and municipal and provincial level tried to do what it could. I think that there were lots of great things that happened. And I think there are lots of tragic mistakes that occurred. Before we do a postmortem of the government, I'd like to see a postmortem of us as citizens to say, did, how did we do? How did we do supporting one another? There were some really outstanding things that happened in terms of communities supporting communities, but there was also a lot of bullshit that occurred um, that didn't that didn't help one another at a time when we were very isolated. And so I I, I think that that matters as, as as we talk about it, which we are totally not talking about the border anymore. Yeah. Which, which you know what it is what it is because this is the great thing about the show we will start with one topic and we'll branch into a bigger discussion about values and where we go as a country um i do want to give you the last word and on this on this question um we are rounding the corner of COVID 19 we are now potentially knock on wood out of the worst and i say that hesitantly do you see Canada being a better country because of what we went through or a more divided country where we are now allowing everything to be part of the political discourse? Because that, like COVID-19 should not have been part of the political discourse, but it became it because of politicians and policies that were put in place by politicians. Do you believe that we are more divided now or do you think we are going to be stronger as a united country moving forward? Last word. Well, I'm uh, I'm largely um, disappointed in how the vaccine rollout was not a, a, an initiative of national pride. I think it was made unnecessarily complicated. And I think those are the consequences of not putting communicators and rhetoricians in places of power when you deal with a vaccine rollout. That's my two cents on that. I think the answer will come in the vision that will arise from new political leadership, not the existing one we have, but in new political leadership. I do think that we were very hard on one another as a country. I do think that we're tired and we're worried and we're concerned for the future and rightfully so. I think the pain points of COVID have yet to really manifest themselves. We've yet to really see the pain of inflation. We've yet to really see the the, the pain of just how many businesses folded under COVID that we believe will come back that won't in fact come back at all. Um, so I do believe that while the, the disease itself, we're on the other side of it tentatively, uh, I believe that the, the economic impact um, is only just being felt. Um, and that worries me tremendously. Um, and I think that um, that we should be concerned for that. But I'm not losing hope that there won't be leadership with a vision to say um, we can re-rally here. And I think the, the shining light to that will be that Canadians are ready to 
unite around a new rally cry for their for their country and, and what the vision is. We really do have to define what Canada is post-COVID. What do we stand for? What do we believe? And, and where are we going to find a new sense of, of pride and unity? Um, I believe it's possible, but I believe with the current infrastructure, it's not there. And that really is very sad to say. That's such a sad note to end on. Can you ask me something happier? Um, so what's your plans for the weekend? <laughs> <laughs> My plans for the weekend is figuring out what we're going to talk about next week. Exactly, which we already got the list going. Um, Jennifer, once again, thank you so much for doing this, um, especially as you are traveling this week. Uh, and I appreciate you waking up extra, extra early to jump on this call and talk about the biggest political news stories of the week and uh, talk about how we are so disagreeing on one issue that I mentioned at the last like 10 minutes of the show, which we will talk <laughs> about later on, probably. Um, for my yes. listeners, thank you so much for tuning in to the eight people who actually followed along for longer than 40 minutes thank you so much for following along and uh, if, thanks, you mom. <laughs> if you haven't already hit the subscribe button for those listening on the audio podcast spotify apple podcast please leave a uh, link please leave a like please uh, uh give us a, uh, a rating give us some feedback we'd love to hear it uh we will be back next Friday, July 30th, as my dog is squealing because she's excited that she can go back outside here. Um, we will be back next uh, next Friday, July 30th at 8 o'clock, hopefully in the same time zone so Jennifer does not have to wake up extra, extra early. Uh, Jennifer, thank you so much once again. Greatly appreciate it. Great to be here. See you next week. The Cross-Border Interview Podcast was produced and edited by Miranda Brown and Associates.